Hey everybody, this is Armando Torres, and you're listening to the show before the show. And I'm Paige Wesley. And with us we have... Andrea Cassetta! Yay! Yay! And uh, we have another great episode for you. It is part two of our series on Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. It's a really fun episode, despite, you know, some darker themes towards the end. But I think that you're all really going to enjoy it. And before we get started with that, we have uh, some news. We have our Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash cultpodcast. And uh, for just $5 a month, we have our bonus show, The Speculation Zone, and a bunch of other fun tiers with different rewards as well. And in addition to uh, possibly supporting us, we would hope that you also consider possibly supporting some other really awesome organizations. And with more information on that is Andrea Gazetta. Hey guys, it's me. Did you know that for just $5 a month, you can donate money to the ACLU and uh, have a subscription to Justice? Did you know that? If you are part of our Facebook, we have pinned at the top of the Facebook group right now different organizations you can donate to that help support essentially black justice right now. Um, We also have some different action items, different petitions you can sign. As of right now, um, the the officer who murdered Breonna Taylor has been fired from the police force, but still no charges are being filed against him or any of the other people that fired into the home. Um, so if you want to write Kentucky and let them know that you're not cool with that, you can do that. Uh, we have a bunch of different people that you can contact in the Facebook group. Um, and I also encourage you to write your own local representatives because those are the people that care about your voice that are interested in what you have to say and want to please you because you can vote them out so make sure that you get in touch with your local representatives let them know how you feel about black lives matter and the social justice issues that we're talking about defunding the police uh putting more money and more spending towards programs that actually help strengthen communities and help citizens instead of instead of hurting them <laughs> yeah just go ahead and uh, check that out in the facebook group and uh stay safe out there if you're protesting please wear your mask i love you perfect and i think without any further ado let's get into the show hello 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 don't drink the For the purposes of this podcast, we define a cult as organizations that rally behind an entity or leader who espouse beliefs outside the norm, organizations that require physical or monetary sacrifice as a condition of membership, organizations in which the doctrines followed by the leaders are different than that of the followers, organizations in which isolation is encouraged either by commune living or by a policy of disconnection from outside relationships, and organizations that actively recruit new members. All cults might have some or all of these traits, and as always, these are our opinions. Thank you for tuning into Cult Podcast. I'm Paige Wesley. And I'm Armando Torres. And with us we have... Andrea Gazetta! Yay! And it's Armando's week. Yes, it's my week. We're doing uh, part two of Timothy McVeigh. Woo! I mean, oh no. Yeah, yeah. It's another one of those things where it's like, I'm very excited to talk about all of the interesting shit that happens in the story. Um, but we also know where the story ends up. Yeah, and that's not, it's not great. 
Um, but I do promise that I have found at least some goofy shit for us to talk about <laughs> oh, God. in this episode because he consistently is both a the goofiest guy. I'm pretty sure we started calling him a gutter ball last week. Yeah, he I he is a gutter ball. Uh, I also got some messages from our gun expert William uh, that basically was like, "Hey, why didn't he just buy silencers?" <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "You're right." <laughs> Yeah. He was like, he clearly just wanted to be a dick. If there's anything that we'll learn about Timothy McVeigh this episode, it's probably that nothing is ever as bad as he thinks it is. Yeah. It's the government's fault that I can't get my chicken wings, and it's time to end the government. We had to harvest like 15 buffalo for those. <laughs> Uh, so this episode is going to be a mix. It's going to be a little bit sad. It's going to be a little bit goofy. Um, but before we get into it, let's get into the sources. So we have a 60 minutes interview with Timothy McVeigh before his execution. Same as last week. Very weird to watch. (laughs) Yeah, I'll bet. Then there are several articles on white supremacist groups by the Anti-Defamation League. We have the book American Terrorist, written by Dan Herbeck and Lou Michael. We have the documentary Oklahoma City, directed by Barack Goodman. And last and always least, we have (laughs) The Turner Diaries by William Luther Pierce. Boo! Yeah, it um, it is the worst book and also one of the most important pieces of understanding kind of everything and how it comes together. So uh, I hate reading it. I hate reading it so much every time. Every time I pick it up, it's because it starts with a bunch of racist stuff uh, for 211 pages, and then the book ends, and that's it. That's the whole book. It's the whole thing. God, I hate it. So when we left off last week, it was May of 1988. I'm about to be born. Yeah, you're about a couple months away from being born. Let me. See. I've already been born. Ooh. Ooh. Let me set the stage. Andre is about to be born. Little baby Paige is roaming around. Uh, yes. Never gonna give you up is the hottest song of the summer. <laughs> This tracks. The beaches are filling up and movie theaters are playing classic films like Earth Girls Are Easy and Rambo 3, Time to Save a Friend. Okay, Earth Girls Are Easy (laughs) is pretty fun, though. That's a pretty fun movie. Also, Rambo 3, I stand stand Rambo 3. (laughs) (laughs) I found a whole list of every single movie released in 1988 just to see what would have been playing at the time. And I accidentally discovered my all-time favorite trio of rom-coms from 1988. So here they are. The first one is called And God Created Women. The second one is called Casual Sex? And the third one is called She's Having a Baby. Oh, She's Having a Baby is like a famous movie. Oh, yeah. The other two, not so much. The other two, not at all. But if you think about it, those movies with absolutely nothing together... They do fit if you put them in that order, title-wise. Ah, oh, God. My The best film name from uh, 1988, in case you're wondering, is uh, The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years. Nice. Okay. 
that was one of the classes in college was Decline of Western Cinema, and I think it was actually based on the title of that movie. Ooh. Um, but I do know what came out in 1987, the year I was born, Princess Bride. Aww. So this is happening in a world where Princess Bride already exists and is possibly still in some theaters. Exactly. Life was pretty good. But for the 20-year-old Timothy McVeigh, it was about to get a hell of a lot more difficult because he had just signed up for the United States Army. Yikes. And the farm boy he was in love with left to be a pirate and never came back. Aww. As you wish! <laughs> the good old 1987 years. Um, <laughs> the decade before you were born. On May 30th, 1988, Timothy McVeigh is pushed off of a bus at Fort Benning, Georgia, shaved down, vaccinated, and handed his gun and uniform. Welcome to boot camp. Three months of excruciating reconditioning designed to tear recruits down and build soldiers out of their broken remains. It starts with the world's worst workout. Miles of running, hundreds of push-ups, and countless sit-ups all done while wearing their full heavy tactical gear. The intense exercise and the blazing sun is enough to make most of the recruits vomit and some others straight up pass out. See, I thought the workout I've been doing all quarantine was the worst workout on earth. Where you just kind of sit on the couch. Like, you're not really working out anything. (laughs) (laughs) Then came the mental training, which included conditioning yourself to the effects of tear gas. Recruits were placed in a small closed environment filled with tear gas and forced to yell out their entire name and social security number. Wait, so instead of the army being like, hey, what if we give them equipment to protect them from possible tear gas they were just like no let's just make them immune make them suffer i was gonna say see i'm going the other way i think this is just a ploy to steal all of their identities (laughs) (laughs) there's just one drill sergeant and what's the last four of your credit card number no the the digits on the back okay expiration date you can almost come out now (laughs) not too long The army does not pay well. (laughs) (laughs) To answer your question, Andrea, um, they weren't really trying to make anyone immune to it because it turns out you never really get immune to it. Eventually, you just learn to deal with how painful it is to get tear gas. Their eyes burnt, their skin peeled back, and their heads felt like they were going to explode. And boot camp was tough, especially for a guy who spent most of his life known as Noodle McVeigh. But Timothy decided that it was necessary because every hero needs his training montage. Gonna need a montage. Montage. Talking about a montage. I want you guys to always remember that Timothy McVeigh considers himself to be an action film aficionado. That is what he loves more than almost anything on this earth. It's probably guns, action films, pickle juice, heavy cans falling on his head. That is the order (laughs) of things that Timothy loves. He's a boob man. We got it. (laughs) 
For three movies now, America had watched John Rambo kick ass over and over and over again. And if you're a devoted gun nut like Timothy, the firepower-driven action scenes are basically like pornography. I mean, he's literally busting his gun nut. Gross. And even though Rambo couldn't pronounce all of his lines correctly, uh, the fictional former Green Beret is an undeniable badass. If Timothy can follow in Rambo's footsteps, he'll become a symbolic American hero, too. And besides, boot camp isn't all bad. It's also where he meets his two new best friends, Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier. Terry was a balding man from Michigan with one hell of a temper. He was mostly upset because he was shorter and older than all of the other recruits in the army. And he thought that his age and stature made him look like a failure. He's actually Benjamin Button. He's baby sized. He's like 100 years old. I actually kind of want to show you guys what he looks like. I have a picture. Can I share the screen with you? Yeah. Yes. Here's a picture of Terry Nichols. Oh, God. Oh, oh no. <gasps> Do you know who he looks like? To me, he looks a lot like Jeffrey Dahmer mixed with David Koresh. Yeah, a little bit for sure. He, to me, he looks a lot like, did you see that documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight? No. It's where this girl grows up and a family, fr- like a friend of the family abducts her, takes her down to Mexico and convinces her she's on an alien mission that involves having sex with him. It's a it's a journey, but he looks like that guy, like hardcore. He certainly looks like an alien. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I don't like it. His face is scary. He looks perpetually surprised. Yeah, god damn. Oh my god, he's so scary. Just the he's the thing about him is that in every picture he just kind of stares off in the distance at nothing. Ooh. I can't focus on your face right now. I'm thinking about eating children. (laughs) Like I said, Terry thought his uh, age, his stature, and probably a little bit of what's going on all over his face made him look like a failure. But Michael Fortier, on the other hand, embraced the stench of failure, probably because it covered the smell of weed that seemed to follow him everywhere he went. Here's a picture of Michael Fortier. (laughs) <laughs> oh. Here, oh, this he looks, dude. He looks like a mix between John Lennon and Adam Driver. I swear to fucking God. He he is absolutely a hot guy on Boy Meets World in the 90s. And he has that horrible thing where like his hair looks like a wig, but it's not, which makes it worse. You know what he reminds me of? He looks like the guy that works in a coffee shop that pretends to be your friend. And then when you won't go out with him, he calls you a variety of sexual slurs. Like, he's just like, ah, you bitch. He brings guitars to the party every time. Yeah. So this guy is a 20-year-old from Arizona who only joined the military to avoid some jail time over a minor drug charge. The only thing that he really wanted to do was get home and get high again. That's really it. That's his whole character motivation. He's just like, man, can't wait to smoke these blunts, though. Once I get out of boot camp, I'm going to smoke the shit out of some blunts (laughs) and some insurgents. (laughs) 
So the three of them met when they were placed in the same platoon at Fort Benning. Because of his age, Terry Nichols was made the squad leader, but the other recruits teased him nonstop by always referring to him as Pops. <laughs> oh, oh no. and michael wasn't doing much better popularity wise because he was like everyone's little brother he just whined and lagged behind all day making the whole platoon look bad but in these two outcasts timothy had found the family that he had always wanted terry was like the gun loving father that local softball legend bill mcveigh could never be Which is fair. It's hard to be anything else when you are a local softball legend. Accurate, accurate. That's true, that's true, that's true. And Michael Fortier was just like the annoying little brother that Timothy never had. After boot camp, the three of them were sent to Fort Riley, Kansas, where they lived together as one big government-hating family. I would love to see that sitcom. <laughs> they do. I my favorite stuff is that they get into all of these like fun things, these little hijinks where like Timothy McVeigh teaches the other two how to count cards, and then they steal a bunch of money from other uh, soldiers in poker games. Is that a, is that real? That's real. Jesus. That's real. Timothy uh, Timothy started <laughs> Timothy started a loan sharking business in the army because uh it wasn't really malicious he just noticed that all of his other soldiers spent all of their money really really fast and they always needed to borrow money so he basically started a a lending service where he would charge you interest uh on a loan and terry nichols ironically racked up like four thousand dollars of debt with timothy mcveigh jeez damn it pops stop (laughs) Cut it out. But my absolute favorite story is how Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, and Michael Fortier ran an underground taxi service for the other army soldiers. Because, uh, except for Michael Fortier, who somehow still was able to grow weed in the army in Kansas, uh, except for him, the other two were sober, except for, like, the occasional pickleback shot, I guess. Were they like, Ugh. were they the sober that's like, I'm better than you sober? Or were they sober like, I had a problem in the past and now I'm sober? Um, Timothy McVeigh doesn't, at this point in his life, has never done drugs. Interesting. Terry Nichols is also very like, by the book. They're both very intense people. Yeah. What the hell was he spending all that money on then? Right? Uh, I honestly, I just think guns and bullets, which is kind of bullshit. You're in the army. I thought yeah, they, gave they those give away. you those. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, too, one of my friends used to be, he was on essentially military base police force. And he said, because in the military, so many kids come in when they're really young and they're technically underage, but they're going to fight that underage drinking is one of the biggest issues in the army and drunk driving so his whole job yeah. is basically to stop people from drunk driving and take them home like yeah. he's just like a glorified taxi well that's what timothy mcveigh was doing he basically just he uh he would charge people money and he would wake up at any time of night and just drive to wherever you were and pick you up in his tiny little car that's not a bad business no and they made a killing that's how terry nichols was able to pay him back that like four thousand dollars worth of debt but after spending about two years together hanging out constantly timothy started to realize something about terry nichols and michael fortier 
they're kind of losers and the only thing that they all have in common is a hatred of the government but timothy doesn't even think his friends reasons are good reasons Terry Nichols was always yelling about how the government took his farm, but in reality, he had racked up $40,000 worth of credit card debt and lost his farm in a small claims court. Maybe if he hadn't borrowed money, he could never pay back those, and this is a quote here, fancy pants Jews, end quote, oh God, wouldn't yikes. have taken his home. Jews don't have fancy pants. That's the Mormons. Get it together. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, my God. That's great. I love it. (laughs) Wonderful. I love it. Michael Fortier hated the government because they outlawed marijuana, one of God's own creations. And this is the one I'm going to say. I kind of agree with it. All right. (laughs) I'm willing to say I kind of get his side. But Tim was sober. And it was hard to tell if the government hurt Michael or stopped him from poisoning his own brain with the devil's lettuce. So basically, he's like, well, that one, I don't even, I don't even know. Marijuana seemed really, really dumb to Timothy McVeigh. Unlike them, Timothy felt like he had actually been wronged by his government. But again, Timothy's reasons are kind of bullshit also, because like... He's like, they asked him to be quiet. Uh, sorry. <laughs> like, like, that's his. He's going to shit on somebody for being like, oh, marijuana's not legal. When he's just like, I can't be loud. Damn it. And the biggest enemy? Libraries. <laughs> the place where you could never shoot a single gun. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's basically his whole thought process. He was basically like, one time I wanted to shoot a gun and a sheriff told me no, and that is the epitome of a fascist Nazi society. The First Amendment, freedom of speech, read them and weep, listen to my guns, they're talking for me. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, because of his extreme views, there are only two people who are willing to accept him. And now he has to ask himself, does he really want to accept them? It boggles my mind that he's able to look down on them when his only beef with the government is that he had to be quiet. Like, that's so stupid. They all think that the other one's reasons are bullshit. Like, each one of them is like, I'm the only smart one here, bunch well, of fucking <laughs> idiots. This is victimology. That's what it is. Is he? They each think that they're the victim of the government and they want to be the biggest victim. Yeah. And it, and it creates this weird uh, dynamic where it's like, it's like basically Timothy feels like he's going into senior year and he's like, are these the friends that I'm going to have for the rest of my life? <laughs> <laughs> Becky and I don't even agree on what the most important shoe color is. <laughs> Which is obviously pickle juice green. Oh, so, oh. So many pickle memes in the group. It's just so many. It's pretty great. But on August 2nd, 1990, everything changed. Because there was no more time for the 22-year-old Timothy McVeigh to worry about who his friends were. Iraq, led by the dictator Saddam Hussein, had just invaded the country of Kuwait. And by order of President H.W. Bush, our troops were now headed into the Middle East. 
Timothy believed that every generation has a war. His grandfathers had World War II, his fathers had Vietnam, and this was the beginning of his war. This was his chance to become a real American hero and not just a symbolic one. Basically, he thinks like, I wouldn't have to be like Rambo. I could just be Timothy McVeigh and that would be good enough. I would just be Timothy McVeigh, Gulf War hero and pickle juice enthusiast. <laughs> Gulf War hero, loud ass motherfucker. <laughs> Gulf War hero, gun marriage activist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Timothy McBay, fire me, won't you, baby? <laughs> Yeah, because remember, that was like the whole bit from last week is that he just wants to marry his guns. And after you said that to me, I started looking through my notes and I was like, oh, fuck. I think he does love his guns. <laughs> I mean, devil's advocate, they've got a hole. And if you don't think he could fit in that hole, there was a reason they called him Noodle McVeigh. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh, a little more of an angel hair than a penne, would you say? <laughs> Fettuccine at best. <laughs> <laughs> but before he's sent into combat training, Timothy is allowed to visit home to potentially say goodbye to his friends and family. What friends and family? Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Bessie May. He's just saying goodbye to his guns. I mean, really? Honestly? It's kind of like he actually came home to New York just to say goodbye to his gun collection one last time. <laughs> oh... If he shoots two handguns, does that count as a threesome? <laughs> also, also, if it does count as a threesome, are bullets gun come? I, I think bullets have to be gun come. Definitely, okay. 100%. Like, it's what happens when you squeeze their trigger. Exactly, right? Last week, we couldn't decide what part would be the baby. Are my babies part bullets? But I think that my babies with guns are... I think it's dead bodies, and I don't like this I was anymore. just going to say, I, I was like, I think it is a threesome, but then what do you call the body count that results? Timothy McVeigh's biggest problem was that he could never find the clip. Oh. <laughs> 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 he spent years looking for the gun spot. <sighs> so basically, he's surrounded by all of his rifles, all of his handguns, and piles and piles of ammunition, and it all starts to set in. Timothy McVeigh has to ask himself, is there a shooting range up there in heaven? <laughs> yeah, that's how all those babies got there. <laughs> I think it'd be more of like, you have to shoot lightning bolts, and he's just like, but I want to bring my AK. <laughs> yeah, he basically, I mean, that's, that's really his whole thought process is he's like, if I die in battle, will my guns come with me? He's basically like, most people want to know if their fillings come with him. He's like, but what about my open carry? Does that come with me too? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. True facts. When I first heard the term open carry, I thought that it was in reference to having open containers of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, that makes sense because open container and open carry do sound similar. Yeah. But so then when they're I, like, I get that. oh, no, it's guns. I was like, guns and drunk people? This is horrible. <laughs> well, that's like those laws where they're like, you can bring a gun to a bar. And I'm like, who thought this was a good idea? Oh, my God. It's such a terrible idea. Wisconsin. And just like going to a bar in Wisconsin, Timothy had good reason to fear for his life. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
experts were predicting that the conflict could last anywhere between seven to eight months and take thousands of American lives in the process. On his last night back home, hours before he was scheduled to head back to Fort Riley, Timothy decided to clear his head by shooting his guns. Because this time, he didn't care what the fuck his neighbors thought, this might be one of his last days on Earth, and all he wanted to do was shoot his goddamn gun collection. But this time, his neighbors weren't even a little bit angry. In fact, they looked at him with respect. You might even say that they saw him as some sort of hero. And that was what made Timothy decide that the war was worth fighting. And I want to be very clear here. It wasn't uh, politics or money or uh, oil or even uh, defending American rights. It was the fact that people looked at him at, as a hero and he they just let him shoot guns. And he was like, I can get kind of used to this. <laughs> That's the entire reason this man was like, this war is worth fighting. Because when I come back, they'll never look at me weird for shooting guns again. <laughs> they'll never think a, a war veteran is upsetting. There's a hero. If you fire off your gun, <laughs> you don't have to be afraid of all bang bangs. <laughs> So when Tim returned to Fort Riley, Kansas, he was hit with some heartbreaking news. It turned out that Terry and Michael wouldn't be fighting alongside next to him. Uh, mostly because Michael was the local weed dealer and all the higher-ups, emphasis on higher, didn't want to lose their <laughs> supply. That's not a joke. The dude had weed so good that it got him out of fighting a war. That's amazing. I mean, hero. <laughs> Uh, Terry Nichols, on the other hand, he had kind of a soap opera for a life and had gotten an emergency discharge. Uh, in order to keep his kids, he had to earn enough money to buy his farm back. But instead, he flew to the Philippines and married a 17-year-old girl, which <laughs> he also may or may not have also killed her toddler son. What the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah, okay, so he, I'm going to come clean. He has the wildest life, and I'm not sure why no one focuses on how fucking wild fucking Terry Nichols' life is. So he's basically like, I got to go home to take care of my kids, and the army's like, bet, for sure. Uh, take care. Go get those kids, Terry. We believe in you. And he goes home, and for like a week, he's like, "I gotta get a job." And then they were like, "Can you come? Can you come work?" And he was like, "Oh, this is too hard." So then he just <laughs> flies to the Philippines and marries a 17-year-old male order bride who is already pregnant with somebody else's baby. And when the baby is born, he's put in charge of watching the baby, and he may or may not have strangled it to death with a plastic bag. Oh my, oh my god yeah he's a monster he uh at the, I, i'm willing to say this much it was not proven that he did it but at the very worst he murdered a kid with a plastic bag at the very best he let his wife's son die while he was supposed to be taking care of the son yeah. yeah, it's bad either way. If a kid is an infant, it's really hard for them to get hold of a plastic bag unless you give it to them. So, yeah, we'll get into uh, the craziness that is Terry Nichols next week. But I just wanted to give you guys that little teaser of just like 
absolutely it's just a little dose of what the fuck did you just say to me mm-hmm. yeah so he just all around kind of a monster already oh yeah just a total fucking psychopath but as a parting gift uh terry nichols and michael fortier give timothy a copy of their favorite book the turner diaries Ugh. yeah so we've covered this 211 page piece of shit before and we definitely will again especially next week in a little bit further detail but for now here is a quick recap on the parts that are relevant to us it's a story about a fictional racist named earl turner who lives in the year 2099 where a race war has destroyed our country Armies of black men, led by their Jewish puppeteers, disarm, enslave, and even eat their new white prisoners. But Earl Turner had seen the signs. It started with desegregation and political correctness. Then came affirmative action, and finally the evil fascist regime known as the system announced that ending racism also meant exterminating the white race. And the first step of exterminating the white race was to take away their guns. Uh, wow. This book is idiotic. <laughs> this book, yeah. That's not even the whole book. This is where the idea that ending racism means hurting white people kind of gets boosted up into the mainstream, especially here in America, because it's always kind of existed uh, sort of in the back of people's minds or in the mostly in the back of racists' minds. Yeah. But it's that thought process of like the, the, the way that we see this is when people say black lives matter and other people say, well, all lives matter. And it's say it's the thought that if black lives matter, that statement means that they matter more than white lives. But the truth is, if you've had a bunch of privileges your whole life because you the you live in a system that oppresses non-white people and then someone's like hey what if everyone had those opportunities and what if everyone had access to that income and what if the people that actually created things got a portion of that money back instead of you know prison slave labor and all that then white people are like oh my god the oppression it hurts so bad yeah according to tim though he wasn't really interested in any of the racist parts of the book so the cover he's into the cover <laughs> yeah which is doubtful seeing as how he also quote unquote ironically owned a white power t-shirt See, it's ironic if you own a white power t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that is both ironic and hilarious. Yeah. But... <laughs> it's uh, an ironic white power t-shirt, by the way, that he got when he signed up for a year-long subscription of the Ku Klux Klan's newsletter. Oh, the irony. Wow. Mm, so ironic. It's like pages of your racist shit that we had to read because you made us do it it's not ironic either i'm just it's shitty i hate this book so he claimed that the only part that actually made sense to him was how taking away america's guns would probably kickstart the end times and i'm gonna be honest with you i'm willing to agree so Timothy basically just accepts his parting gift. He says goodbye to his friends and then he heads off to combat training. And if you guys thought that boot camp was bad, this was something else completely. The army didn't just need soldiers, it needed 
killing machines. And Tim was determined to be the best of the best, no matter what it took. And some of his efforts were kind of fucking goofy. Like, uh... Like how he spent hundreds of dollars on an extra gun and uniform so that he could have an absolutely spotless uniform and gun for inspection days. What a fucking nerd. Yeah. 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 yeah, This guy, it's the same as like if you're Andrea Gazetta and you have a special pencil for test taking. It's the same exact nerdy shit. My test taking pencil has unicorn on the top and it's lucky (laughs) and I don't want to talk about it. I support your test taking pencil. Also, from what I've heard, and again, I have never been in the armed forces. I cannot vouch for this. But inspection is like no joke. Like they're hardcore about it. But the point is that you're supposed to like keep your uniform and things clean, not like have a spare clean one. Yeah. The best thing that Timothy could hope for was that a guy would just be like, oh, wow, that's a really clean outfit good job and then walk away but all of the other soldiers in his squad all they saw was timothy being a complete fucking asshole and basically cheating at at inspection and making everyone else look bad in comparison which is not the point you're supposed to look like a unit so like he really is like fucking with their shit ironically it did make him look like a total unit it made him look (laughs) just exactly like a dick (laughs) Um, (laughs) but some of tim's efforts were legitimately badass and even a little bit scary like when he and his fellow soldiers flew to germany to learn urban warfare and it became clear that tim was a master at clearing out barns and homes the german military even called him a one-man doomsday device which is fucking eerie yeah that's kind of terrifying that is terrifying, but what's kind of funny is the word for it in German is Guterball. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So Timothy's obvious skill and attention to detail earned him a coveted spot as a Bradley gunner, which I promise is not just somebody who goes around shooting people named Bradley. I swear to God. Oh, see, I thought it was the opposite where it was like a guy with really nice blue eyes that's in like every romantic comedy, but he's just like a gun, a gun with blue eyes and a silky voice. In case you're wondering, a Bradley is kind of like a miniature tank. It's got heavy armor, some big old guns, and it can carry up to six soldiers at a time, not including the people driving it and the people operating the guns it's like a prowler right kind of it really does just look like a tiny tank that's really oh, like okay. if you if you just picture a small little tank that's that's really what it looks like um a tank for the family yeah exactly <laughs> you can have a tank as a treat <laughs> it's the honda odyssey of tanks it's just- <laughs> Very accessible. And in the back, there's a screen so that folds down so the kids can watch a movie, but there's one for each row so they don't fight, okay? Yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a DVD player for the soldiers so they can watch movies, so they can watch the Iron Giant on their way to die. Oh, don't do that. Then they'll be crying too hard to shoot people. <laughs> well, that's the tear gas, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I'm imagining that Timothy McVeigh is just getting tear gassed and he's not reacting at all. And they're like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, man, I just grew, I just, 
spent my whole childhood chugging pickle brine, man. This is nothing. <laughs> Have you ever seen the end of Fox and the Hound? You'd be crying too. <laughs> oh, oh, hurts. It hurts. See, if we want to look at, like, humane alternatives to tear gas, we should just put on Iron Giant. Just be like, yo, uh, today we're watching Bambi, and then that one scene from Dumbo where his mom cradles him and sings Baby of Mine. You guys ready? (laughs) Instead of tear gas, they just throw crumpled pieces of paper, and you open it up, and it's just like the ending of Marley and Me, and you're like, oh, no! <laughs> the scene in Lion King where Mufasa dies. Oh god! Oh god, my eye! Oh, that one got me. Oh, when I was a kid, brutal. I was in daycare, just sobbing because they're like, "Hey, here's a treat. Let's show the kids Lion King." And my dad had just left our family, and so when the dad died, I started sobbing uncontrollably, and they had to remove me from the room and call my mother. Long live the king! <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, so something that I hadn't really considered before now, uh, which doesn't mean that you guys haven't, it's just something that I didn't consider, is how soldiers get to war. I mean, like, obviously I know that they're flown into the country that they are staying, but I, I, I didn't really realize that you can't just march in like a revolutionary war or some kind of anime. You've You'd fucking get blown to bits if you just went in there with your full army lined up in a row, especially because, again, they thought they were going to be fighting tear gas and long-range missiles, so that's not really an option. So instead, you get driven in on uh, armored vehicles like the Bradley. Essentially, Bradleys are like the Greyhound buses of war because they're hot, dangerous, and everyone has at least one gun. (laughs) That sounds about right. And it was Timothy's job to make sure that they got to the war in one piece. He would sit on top of the Bradley behind one of those big old guns and take out heavy artillery or long-range missiles that came anywhere close to the Bradley. It was a lot of responsibility, but it was also kind of the perfect job for Tim. As a child, he had dreamed of doing some badass hero shit. As a teenager, he spent countless hours practicing his aim. And as a young adult, he defended armored cars in the inner city. Or at least that's what he fucking thought that he did. And if this wasn't his calling, then he didn't know what was. It felt like a perfect fit. It's literally like the evolution of every job he's ever had. Where it's like armored car service is turning into... Bradley. Yeah, I just imagine it like a like some type of sci-fi scene when he sees like the glowing light and he follows it to the gun. <laughs> so the only problem that he had was management. Because despite being one of the top soldiers in his platoon, in addition to being the guy who is directly responsible for everyone's well-being, Timothy wasn't selected to lead his squad. <gasps> Instead, he would be following the orders of a Hispanic lieutenant named Jesus Rodriguez. So what you're saying is he had to follow Jesus. Yeah, and ironically, (laughs) Jesus was taking the wheel. (laughs) 
Um, so in combat training, Timothy was basically the perfect role model. But in January of 1991, he and his squad were deployed to Saudi Arabia, where he found out that the real world has very different priorities. Test scores, grades, training, none of that shit matters when you're in an actual war. The only thing that matters in war is what your rank is. That is your value. Your value is, is literally what rank the army sees you as. And Tim had a lot of ideas, but because he wasn't a lieutenant, none of those fucking ideas mattered. He later claimed that Lieutenant Rodriguez was afraid to take Tim's advice because it might make him look like a weaker leader. But according to Lieutenant Rodriguez, he wasn't ignoring Tim. It was just because he was being pitched the worst ideas in history. <laughs> okay, okay, here's what I'm talking about. What if you have a car, but it's also a snack? snack car and you eat your way out of the car to get to war okay so i have an idea guys we take our canteens we dump out the water fill it up with delicious nutritious pickle brine hear me come on come on <laughs> it's a delicious snack hear me out hear me out you know how we use wd-40 when we clean out our guns mm -hmm. here's my idea we put a little bit more down the barrel and then <laughs> No condoms, no babies, but you still get to have yourself a good time. Shoot your load. Easy, Noodle. Easy. I call it WD-69. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm serious. This guy was pitching out the worst ideas of all time. So it all started when they first got to the Middle East. And while they were getting a feel for their new terrain, driving around in the Bradley, Tim constantly asked if he could play his favorite song, Bad Company, through <laughs> their squad's radio system. <laughs> I don't know if y'all have heard the song Bad Company by the band Bad Company. <laughs> Company? I listened to it today. Uh, in preparation. Yeah. And we do a lot um, of research for these episodes, guys. So much. So much. Yeah. Timothy thought that it would make everyone feel like a badass, but in reality, it meant that no one could hear anything over the sounds of four British dudes pretending to be American cowboys from the wild, wild west. Wait, is that their thing? Is that. Yeah. The Okay, so what? a little bit of background on Bad Company. <laughs> Uh, there was a band called, I think it was called Free, and it was these British dudes from London, and they just kept fucking fighting with each other and disagreeing on shit, so they all went on, like, soul journeys separate, and then all of them realized that they couldn't play with other bands, so they came back to their band, and they kicked, also, they just kicked one dude out entirely, and they were like, we have to come up with, like, a whole new gimmick, and then they saw, uh... Uh, um, oh, what's that movie? That Clint Eastwood movie, A Fistful of Bullets? Mm-hmm. And after they watched A Fistful of Bullets, they were like, yeah, let's be cowboys from the American wild, wild west. And so Bad Company was the song that they wrote together in just about an hour of everything that they knew off the top of their heads about being an American cowboy. A, great. B, I'm pretty sure that the one guy they kicked out just had a different fantasy where he was like, what about pirates? And they were like, get out, Gary. <laughs> uh, I prefer to be called Blackbeard, but okay, I'm gone. <laughs> Three, uh, this is the exact reason why I hate the band Fish because <laughs> the, it's just too complicated. All of it's too much. I can't. 
I can't. In case you're wondering, uh, the song Bad Company by Bad Company is based, it's, it's, it's a bunch of nonsense things where he's like, I was born holding a six gun and I'm going to die behind a gun. And it's like, I don't think you've ever held a gun because they're illegal in your country. That would hurt coming out. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm just gun baby. That's the new movie. Gun baby. There was boss baby. Now there's gun baby. Gun baby. Gun baby. Starring Alec Baldwin. <laughs> Gun Baby is like the perfect improv group name. <laughs> we are Gun Baby. I'm going to need a suggestion from the audience. Bullets? Great. Quick time out. I think that Clint Eastwood movie is a, few, a fistful of dollars. I think it is too. Not a, a fistful, fistful of, of bullets. I'm going to be honest. I haven't seen the movie. Okay. Because then the, the sequel is a few dollars more. Okay. Maybe it's just a few bullets moss. <laughs> Um, uh, fun fact, Edgar Wright loves A Fistful of Dollars Mm. and made one of his first, like, childhood student films based on it. It's called A Fistful of Fingers, which I think is pretty great because most fists are full of fingers. Yeah. Yikes. That's pretty great. But I just imagined him grabbing them like spaghetti anyway. I just like that you were like, forget the fingers that are already on the fist. Yeah. Those don't count. No, no, no. I want to grab it like a like one of those. Have you guys ever been to one of those fancy grocery stores where they have the barrels of candy? That's what I want. I want I want by the pound fingers. Yeah, with the scoops, obviously. Yeah. That's exactly how I'm imagining this. Fist full of fingers. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> So that wasn't the end of his dumbass ideas. When the squad was designated to a division called Charlie Company, Lieutenant Rodriguez named the Bradley Charlie Eleven, but then Tim suggested a more badass name, Bad Company, after the song Bad Company (laughs) by the band Bad Company. Oh, this is like, I mean, I, I hate to make this comparison because I didn't find it unpleasant at all. But do you remember the last time when we went to Panic Fest and we just listened to DaBaby the entire time for three days straight? Oh, yeah. If it was as good as DaBaby, maybe they wouldn't have minded. <laughs> I forgot when we got to Panic Fest and I was like, hey, hey guys, can we name this car DaBaby? <laughs> I want to be carried around and supported by DaBaby. <laughs> so quick aside, at my art school... There was a wood shop. You could use the wood shop anytime during open shop hours to make anything you wanted as long as you were certified. There was a kid. Anything? Wait, hold on. Anything I wanted? There was a kid who every day would go into the wood shop to make a sword and every day get that sword confiscated because he was threatening other students in the dormitory with his wooden swords. Wait, would he... he wait... It got to a point where he would try to sneak them in his trench coat. He would do all these things <laughs> to sneak his swords out of the wood shop. And all of the, the RAs knew that he was probably going to make a sword and that they should beware. This is like that old proverb where at the end of the year, uh, the guy was like, <laughs> why did you keep trying to sneak swords out? And the kid was like, what I was really smuggling was the trench coats. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, this kid would threaten other people with his swords, and then any time in class you had to do anything, he wanted to just make a sword. That was his art. And this sword's name is Bad Company, after the song <laughs> Bad Company. Yeah, that's what I imagine Timothy McVeigh is. By the band Bad Company. So basically, Timothy McVeigh was like, come on, guys, we should all be named Bad Company because we're like modern day cowboys riding through the desert and shooting our guns. And everyone was like, I'm not going to. That sounds dumb. And I also hate that song. Please stop playing it. <laughs> I miss Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. <laughs> Hottest song of the summer in 1988 as of May. <laughs> A certified fact. I don't know. I actually don't quote a me on that. A certified classic. Exactly. I also, Bad Company is not an upbeat song. No. It's like a weird metal ballad. It's just like, Bad Company. It's just like. So the two songs that I know that he played all the time was Bad Company and then he would play um, White Rabbit all the time, even though he hated drugs. Because he wanted to do everything he could to make it feel like he was living the Vietnam experience. Like he wanted that epilogue scene of like him writing and you hear like the 60s music where it's like, uh, bad company. And he's like, I've all, all my life I wanted to be a hero. You know, he's just fucking monologuing. That's his whole thing. He thinks he's in a movie. That's Pick it. a better soundtrack. Pick a better soundtrack. <laughs> so he's a villain, basically. He's just monologuing to yeah. songs and torturing everyone around him slowly. He's a villain that thinks that he's a hero. That is the Timothy McVeigh story in a nutshell. But the final straw came in February of 1991. President H.W. Bush had given Saddam an ultimatum. Go back home, or the United States would spearhead a second invasion of Kuwait. And as the days went by, it became clear that the war was inevitable, and Lieutenant Rodriguez had just volunteered his squad to lead the charge. Ironically, this was a little too badass for Tim's taste. Oh, no! <laughs> yeah. Asshole! But this time, Timothy decided he wasn't just going to let it go. He felt like Lieutenant Rodriguez was too inexperienced to realize that he had just offered up the squad as sacrificial lambs. Their Bradley was armored, but they were going to be directly between two armies firing everything they had at each other, which meant that they were at risk from both sides. Because not only would they have to dodge Iraqi tear gas and missiles, but they would also be avoiding allied tanks, allied rounds, other missiles, planes going overhead, you know, just bullets shooting. They're just avoiding fucking everything. It's a nightmare. And so now Tim believes that it's a suicide mission. And in reaction, he just kind of pouts uh, like there's no other way to explain it. He's just kind of like, he just wakes up in the morning and they're like, hey, Tim, how are you? And he's like, I, I guess I'm fine, but we're all going to die. And everyone's like, wow, can you stop being such a fucking dick about it then? Here, Tim, we'll let you play bad company for the 7,000th time if you'll shut the <laughs> fuck up. <sighs> Thanks, guys. Bad company. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, so he's just basically, his bad vibes are spreading to the rest of the squad too, because remember that Timothy is the guy in charge of keeping them all alive, and now he's just sitting around moping, being like, guys, we're all gonna die, and everyone's like, oh, 
Fucking yeah, probably, Tim, if you keep it up. Because of how Timothy's acting, Lieutenant Rodriguez was well within his rights to punish Tim for undermining his authority. He could have sent him back home. He could have even had him court-martialed. But instead, he decided to be very, very nice. Lieutenant Rodriguez made Timothy a very interesting offer. Not only was he going to promote Tim to reflect the responsibility that he would be taking on as gunner, but... He also decided to let him paint bad company on the side of their Bradley. God damn it. And even though Tim hates his lieutenant to death, he's still a little bit grateful when he accepts. Now, there's a lot of aspects to war that I just straight up never thought about. One of them uh, was, you know, how do you fucking get to war? And you basically take a bus with a gun on it. Uh, but one of the other things that really fucked me up was the concept of friendly fire. Because friendly fire sounds like a cartoon about an anthropomorphic fire that helps cave people learn how to use tools. But, <laughs> but in reality, it's much, 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 much worse. Uh, friendly fire is, is the term used to describe an injury or death caused by your own allied soldiers. And the average rate of friendly fire for American wars is about 2.5%. That means, on average, 2.5% of the people who fight for America are killed by their own allies. Usually on accident, but still, 2.5%. But this was no ordinary war. During the Gulf War, 24% of the Americans who died were killed by friendly fire. Damn! There were so many famous instances of friendly fire that happened during the Gulf War. There was uh, the time that 11 Marines were shot down by an attack plane from the U.S. Air Force. Or when the Air Force shot down two Black Hawk helicopters and killed 26 Allied soldiers. And who could forget that time that the Air Force accidentally shot up a Bradley just a few miles from Timothy and killed two Army soldiers and injured six others. Although, none of those stories were what Tim heard about at the time. At the time, the Army told him and all the other soldiers that these attacks were being carried out by an elite Iraqi death squad. They needed him to believe that so that he would be on board with all of the other absolutely evil shit that he already did know about. Like the air raids in Iraq, where over the course of 37 days, the U.S. dropped over 88,000 tons of bombs over both civilian and military buildings. In just a little over a month, remember, 37 days, they had managed to kill 10 to 12,000 people. 25% of those people were innocent civilians. Jesus. Damn. Is this a time... So I, I'm a little bit hazy on sort of the evolution of military technology. I, I, I'm not exactly sure on the timeline, but is one of the problems possibly that they're getting all this friendly fire is that the technology is showing them things like on their radar or on their screen they're seeing like movement but they can't identify whether or not it's an enemy is that part of the issue it is it's less of an army and more of a task force where 
the people set up from the front lines are different services from different countries. So like not only are all of the branches of the United States military there, but you have uh, British military, I think Canadian military, French military, United uh, Arab Emirates. You have like all of these different countries. I think Egypt was there too. They're not actively engaging in war, but there's all of these little skirmishes that happen along the borders of Kuwait and everywhere that they're staying. So everyone's just on edge. No one fully knows any of the other people that they're stationed with. Everyone has these crazy plans. Everyone's from different countries. Some people don't speak the same language. There's just all of this confusion going on. Um, at one of the most stressful periods that I think you could ever be in, which is like right before a war breaks out. Yeah. But basically, Tim was told that the ends justify the means when you are being killed by an elite Iraqi death squad. And so now you see a pattern that we've been noticing again and again when we cover cults, especially this kind of cult. You have leaders that tell their followers that they're being persecuted. And this makes the followers want to fight back against persecution even more. But the persecution is secretly caused by the leaders, which just endears the followers to them. It's just a vicious cycle. We saw it in Waco. We saw it with uh, the Aryan Nations and Ruby Ridge. And we're starting to see it again here, but this time with the American uh, military. I guess, but this isn't where it starts with the military. They've done some fucked oh, up yeah. shit. They've done some real bad stuff. So Timothy's all keyed up to take down the elite Iraqi death troopers because he thinks that they're basically like the ultimate evil because the army has him convinced it's like, these are your Nazis. Like you have to go and fight these guys now. And on February 21st, 1991, he finally got what he wanted. Saddam Hussein ignored President H.W. Bush and Operation Desert Storm commenced. Timothy, sitting in the gunner's seat, rode with the rest of Bad Company to Kuwait. Because remember, they changed the name of their Bradley to Bad Company. And the whole drive, he's just like, all right, guys, let's do this. Bad Company! And everyone's like, oh, man, I fucking, this is, I hope I get shot, honestly. Why did you promote this asshole? (laughs) Even though they were about 30 minutes away from the border, the drive felt like hours because enemy vehicles explosive devices and missiles came at the bradley from all angles and his own allies couldn't aim for shit bad company had very several close calls where they almost got shot or even run over by their own backup and from the moment that the war began timothy's brain just shut off and he operated on instinct alone Thanks to his insane reflexes, the Bradley made it to the front lines without a single bullet scratch on it. Oddly impressive. And as the enemy bullets slowly stopped, Timothy started realizing something about the Iraqis. He had been trained to stop an elite military force using chemical warfare and long-range weapons. He thought that he was going up against the most evil villain of his time, Saddam Hussein. But that's not what he saw. Instead, he just saw scared, untrained, disorganized men throwing down old rusty guns and trying desperately to run away. After Bad Company entered Kuwait, they pushed forward and either gunned down fleeing enemies or simply ran them over. God. As the Bradley reached its destination, Timothy had already stopped firing, but his lieutenant gave him an order, make sure the Iraqis keep fleeing by shooting into the crowd. Timothy complies and hits a retreating Iraqi officer, completely vaporizing him into just a gooey puddle of blood. 
In fact, the, the blast is so strong, he also kills another person who is just standing next to the officer. And these, these two deaths are Timothy McVeigh's first confirmed kills. As Timothy sat there shooting at people running for their lives, he realized that he may have picked the wrong side if he wanted to be a hero. And if you asked him to describe how he was feeling in that moment, I'm pretty sure he'd tell you that he felt like a bully and a murderer. <laughs> After Desert Storm, everything just kept getting worse for him. For his bravery in combat, he was selected to try out for the Army's Special Forces Unit. Finally, he'd get his chance to be a Green Beret, just like fucking John Rambo. It was exactly what he wanted. The only problem was that the date that he was set to try out was just like, I think it was something like five days after he returned home from the Gulf War. And with no time to rest, train, or even recover from the months of sleep deprivation, constant stress, and nonstop violence that he just finished, he fails. And this is kind of what breaks him forever, because everything in his life has been leading up to these moments, and now it was all for nothing. And this feeling of failure completely reverts him back to his former self i mean excuse the pun uh but this is when you see his old persona noodle its way back into his life yikes that's right folks noodle mcveigh is back oh no yeah hide your guns <laughs> so for the second time in his life he completely drops out from society. He quits the army, he moves back in with his dad, and he does nothing but sit around all day reading books about guns and playing video games. But the problem with Timothy acting like Noodle McVeigh again is that Noodle McVeigh's problem was, it stemmed from bullying. So while he starts to see himself in this way because he, he kind of pities himself at first, like where he's like, oh, I'm just Noodle McVeigh and that's all I'll ever be. That's how it starts. Eventually, he kind of reverts back to this thought process of like, there has to be somebody standing in my way. I just don't know who it is yet. Yeah, he he's someone that doesn't want to see personal failures as his responsibility. So instead of looking inside himself and saying, where was I lacking? How can I do better? He's looking for the enemy because it makes him feel less inferior. Yeah, it makes him feel like he didn't fail at all. Like he just lost, which is somehow easier for him to take than he just was wrong about something. Totally. Also, I'm pretty sure if he searched inside himself, he'd find a little tiny gun. Uh, he probably <laughs> lost it up there a couple of years ago. Well, yeah, that's where his heart should be. There's just a little gun. <laughs> so when Timothy returned to civilian life, he thought that it would be easy to just fall back on the nerd shit that he left behind in high school. He didn't have a degree, but he was a decorated war hero, at least on paper. But what he finds is that three years in the army is not the same as a four-year degree. Crushed and needing to feel a little bit better, he picks up his favorite feel-good book, The Turner Diary. Oh, God. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, you know how you might watch uh, The Princess Bride to feel better? Yeah. He's just like, I need to feel better. Let's read about white cannibalism. Oh, my God. I mean, in fairness, The Turner Diaries and Harry Potter, which is my feel-good movie, both have about the same amount of truth in them so 
So remember though, Tim had always focused on the gun aspects of the book. And in the story, the part that he really honed in on was how the repeal of the Second Amendment was the last seal to be broken before a racial apocalypse. But this time, he started to notice the signs that led up to that. The signs that led up to them taking away guns. Mainly, the book listed desegregation, political correctness, affirmative action, and then finally, they would realize that the only way to end racism was to exterminate the white race. So Tim starts to believe that not only has he seen all of these signs, but that he is also <laughs> suffering directly from their actions. Oh, God. So he believed that he saw the negative effects of desegregation in Buffalo, New York, where he worked long hours in an armored car while, according to his co-workers, black people just sat around all day waiting for the government to send their handouts. He basically thought that white men worked all day just to pay for black people's welfare. Then, while he was in the army, he saw several black soldiers wearing black power t-shirts, which was totally okay. But when Timothy, quote-unquote, ironically bought a white power t-shirt, everyone freaked out. He claims that the scenario was a textbook case of reverse reverse racism, which my, I don't know if you heard, but my mouth just refused to say. <laughs> he claimed that it was a textbook case of reverse racism and falsely labeled it as political correctness. He basically was like, why isn't it okay for me to wear a white power t-shirt, but it's okay for them to wear a black power t-shirt? Because white people have a history of killing black people. Why is this a... Yeah. Also, I want to point out that the army's reaction to both of these people doing this was exactly the same, where they just went, hey, we'd rather you didn't, but we get it. That's it. That's all. They had the same repercussions. He's just too much of a dickhead to ask them about theirs. But worst of all was the affirmative action, because not only could he not get a job now, which totally had nothing to do with the fact that he didn't have a college degree and somehow everything to do with the fact that the white man was being suppressed. <laughs> According to him, affirmative action was actually what put him in this mess in the first place. Because in Saudi Arabia, he shouldn't have been a sergeant. He should have been a lieutenant. He would have had his troops pull back and ordered other squads to cease fire. He also wouldn't have been leading the charge, and these two simple fixes would have meant that he would have been in better shape and might have actually made it as a Green Beret. And he believed that the only reason Jesus Rodriguez was promoted to lieutenant instead of him was because of a need to promote diversity. I hate him so much. Timothy becomes convinced that our own government is too close to the system from the Turner Diaries for his comfort, but he doesn't freak out because the Turner Diaries is more than just a shitty racist story. It's also a shitty racist training manual. And this is actually part of the Turner Diaries that we don't really cover that often. It actually is a manual explaining how to do several things. It's a manual on how to spot an incoming race war, on how to find the resistance movement, and step-by-step -step instructions on launching an attack against your own government. Weirdly, at the end, there's a part about making pizza from scratch, but I don't think that's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was part of the Turner's cookbook, but... <laughs> 
This is the second time in his life that Timothy unknowingly signed up to fight in a war. Only now, he was fighting under a new side. On the side of white supremacy. And that is where we will pick up next week for the last part of our series on Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. I cannot wait. Yeah, we we haven't really we we've kind of touched on it a little bit about how the Turner Diaries uh is more than just just a story. There's a lot of uh if you read the Turner Diaries, you can pick out some of the things that they're trying to teach you that they disguise as kind of plot elements because he couldn't you can't just write a straight up manual that's like, "Hey, here's a bunch of evil shit." So instead, he wrote a manual and then worked his manual into his story to kind of give his training manual some kind of weird plot. Quick aside, so the Turner Diaries is a fictional book. Was it like self-published? How did it? Yeah, it's self-published. Back in the day, anyone could just publish. Well, I mean, even still. You can, you can still do that now. Publish whatever you want. Uh we will get more into the Turner Diaries and sort of their whole role in all of this next week. That will be a okay. lot about what ne- what next week's episode okay. covers. So here is, uh, this is from page two of the Turner Diaries, uh, where the hero, quote unquote, Earl Turner, the protagonist of this fucking dumbass book, is talking about... Um, a, a group of, of black army men who are breaking into his house trying to take his guns away. Right after the Cohen Act was passed, all of us in the organization had cached our guns and ammunition where they weren't likely to be found. They called it the Cohen Act? Good lord. Those in my unit had carefully greased our weapons, sealed them in our assholes, and spent all of... I'm sorry, it was an oil drum. It wasn't their assholes. (laughs) Uh, Those in my unit had carefully greased our weapons, sealed them in an oil drum, which was in our assholes, (laughs) and spent all of one tedious weekend burying the drum in an eight-foot deep pit in Gary, 200 miles away. But... I had kept one gun out of my cachet. I had hid my .357 Magnum revolver and 50 rounds of ammunition inside the doorframe between the kitchen and the living room. By pulling out two loosened nails and removing one board from the doorframe, I could get my revolver in about two minutes, flat, if I ever needed it. I had timed myself. So basically you see through this kind of thin plot even on page two he tells you where you should hide guns and how you can actually access those guns this is really interesting the cover that's not the original cover yeah so the 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 turner diaries has had a few different covers um but you can kind of see here this kind of painting of a man and a woman shooting or aiming their guns uh and that's because uh when he turned it from a, a pamphlet into a book, he the the main thing he did to flesh the story out was he added a love story. I remember <laughs> I remember this from the last time we talked about the Turner Diaries that there is an insane love story in the middle of it. Yeah, it wasn't always in there, and you can definitely tell because uh, William Luther Pierce, he's just like, <laughs> he's someone who's never experienced real love. Um, I want you guys to know what happened to this guy. He fucking like uh, he after he wrote this book, he opened up his own um, uh, publishing agency, and then he opened up a, a, a white supremacist music 
uh, uh, record label. Ooh. Um, yeah, that he had, he ran that for a couple of years. Can't imagine that's great. And had a very long, very very long, very very painful battle with cancer, where he eventually died, uh, pretty much alone. So that's a fun fact for you. The guy Karma. who wrote the Turner Diaries died of a very long, very painful bout with cancer. And like I said, we've covered the book before, not necessarily in this way, but I think um, the one thing that's super important to remember is the one thing that links every white supremacist group that we've ever talked about is this dumb, stupid fucking book right here. This is it. This is the whole thing that unites everything. Waco, Ruby Ridge. Uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, Elohim City, even down to the current people of like the fucking Bundys. Like it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy how powerful this little book is and how it completely changed America forever. Huh. Um. You know what? You know what? Honestly, you know what the real tragedy about this entire story is? Is uh, and we've we've already touched on it a few times this episode, but he didn't actually fail at anything. Like, he got out of the war and went to the tryout. Um, and this is a real story that you can read about in American Terrorist, uh, the book where he gave his full interview. He went to the tryout and the people were like, hey, if uh, you just got back from war, you don't have to try out. And one guy was like, no, nah, man, we all want to do it. And everyone just kind of felt too peer pressured to disagree. So they all took it and they all failed. And the, the, uh, the Green Beret test giver was basically like, hey, you guys can just come back in a year. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you're totally, it's totally fine. You can just come back. But he failed once and he was like, my life is over. <laughs> so he threw a temper tantrum and they were like, no, it's cool, man. We get it. Like, it's a rough time. And he's like, no. Yeah, he even threw, the worst part was like, he didn't have to quit the army. He didn't have to do any of these things. <laughs> he could have stayed in the army, became a Green Beret, had a pension that would have taken care of him forever, and just simply been a weapons expert and trained everyone else on the correct way to shoot guns. The, the, the most tragic part to me is that the army could have actually given Timothy McVeigh everything he ever wanted if he wasn't such a whiny little fucking baby. That's it. That's the that's the ultimate tragedy of this whole thing is he never actually failed. That's crazy. Yeah. What every a bitch. Break down every failure. The first one he's like, "Oh, I tried to play baseball and someone was mean to me." It's like, first of all, you weren't bad at baseball. Maybe you do suck at baseball, but fuck baseball. It's a boring ass sport, and the only reason people go is to buy twenty dollars hot dogs and and take out loans on their houses to buy a beer. You know, that's <laughs> that's been my experience. <laughs> that's the main. I remember the last time I was at Dodger Stadium and it was like Budweiser nineteen dollars, and I was like, "You can go fuck yourself." Yeah, like, I will carry a Franzia wine bladder in my purse before I like give you guys nineteen dollars for one beer. The second one with basketball, where it was like people were being mean to. It's like, yeah, dude, people on sports are always that's that's it. You just shit talk each other, man. But you're dunking on motherfuckers. Like if you're actually good at basketball and somebody says something mean to you just fucking a dunk on them because that there's no coming back from getting dunked on son exactly 
he never failed this is if the one thing he could have he should have just known was just like self-confidence and and being okay with yourself and knowing that you're not gonna do it always on the first try cannot reiterate that enough anyway this episode like always is sponsored by um sergeant mcveigh's hot pickle juice experience now flavored with the lovely with a lovely twist of sand that's it that's what it's pickle brine with sand in it and it's hot and it's carbonated and it's what it's what's for breakfast that's right it's a breakfast drink gross Hey everybody! This episode is brought to you by the Turner Diaries. No, it's not. <laughs> no, 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 we don't not endorse that horrible piece of trash. Oh my God! It's so bad. It's so bad that I bet you I can just go. Okay, tell me when to stop. Stop. Tell me when to stop. Stop. Right there. I look at that. The job of the troops is to separate the blacks from the rest of the population. Okay, you can and stop. Find them Ugh, and control the it's areas over. We're good. until they can be conveyed, convoyed out of their enclave. This book, you can flip to any page and read the most heinous shit, and 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 it sucks, and I hate it. And this episode is actually brought to you by our wonderful, amazing Patreon donors. Bow, 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 bow. Bow just the best and this week even though they probably don't want to follow any of the things that have just been said <laughs> yes. uh this week our episode is brought to you by lara first of her name from the family of peloton yep the in-home bike okay i was gonna say it was like the the exercise bike they say it is for a cult stay safe and healthy Love the podcast. I am a frontline healthcare worker, nurse practitioner, and love listening to your podcast on my way to work. Oh my god! Aww. that's like the opposite of Timothy McVeigh. You're just like a super nice person who's like, I'm a, I'm gonna get fit, work on myself, and be kind to others. And also, yeah, stay safe out there, man. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. Wear them face masks. shields and shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, if you ever, if you're if you're out there and you're a you're a, a, a an essential worker and you see me out in public, um, I get, hit me up. I got a flask. It's full of pickle juice. Uh, no, you can't share you can't share <laughs> juices right now. Absolutely That's not what we're doing not. right now. That's not Absolutely safe. Absolutely not. That's how you get coronavirus. It's yes. pickle juice sharing. I don't know. Uh, I've heard stories. Put pickle juice on it, clears right up. No, we tried that's injecting not science. it. Possibly. There, there, there was like three or four people in the group that were like, "Yeah, it cures colds," and I was just like, "What?" Oh God, no! I was making fun of Trump saying the thing about bleach. I just want to be clear <laughs> about that. Uh, I yeah, let's all start taking pickle brine pills and see where it goes or I not mean, fucking couldn't hurt i still have to kiss you sometimes and i'd rather you didn't <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that makes sense uh you can find our patreon at patreon.com slash cult podcast for just five dollars a month you get access to our bonus show the speculation zone but there's a bunch of other awesome tiers as well with other rewards and if you want to send me anything that'll make me feel better for having to have read the Turner Diaries again, I'll appreciate it. Memes, kind words, and love and appreciation. Thank you. Uh, do it on Twitter and Instagram at Mondo Does Stuff. I love you. Bye. Mwah. Here's the thing, guys. Uh, there's currently a petition going around to rename Columbus, Ohio, Flavortown, Ohio. What? If you sign that petition. Please screenshot it and send it to me on all the things at Sundress Comic or on my Instagram at Andrea Gazetta. I want to see it. Thank you so much. 
if they change the name, we have to move there, right? Yeah, fuck Columbus. I I am so excited. Flavortown is the best city name I've ever heard. They should make Guy Fieri mayor. Yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah. And then like the vice mayor or whatever can be just a can of nachos because uh, <laughs> he makes nachos in those giant cans. Um, I just want to go to a town meeting where he's like, what say you, secretary donkey sauce? And it's just a little... <laughs> It's just a little container from the airport. You know, you absolutely know that Donkey Sauce is going to be the donk troller of flavor. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. That's too good. So good. Oh, man. Just run by the garlic mafia. Um, <laughs> I, yes. Uh, ooh, ooh. I want to see your drawings of the city crest of Flavortown. Ooh. Like, what's their city seal? What's their flag? What's their mascot? What's their thing? I want you to send it to me at Paige Wesley on Twitter or at Rampage Wesley on Instagram. If you like the show, you can follow us on Instagram at Colt Podcast. Or on Twitter at Colt Podcast Show. You can also send us a flavorlicious email to Colt Podcast Show at gmail.com. Mmm, tasty. And you can send us flavoricious actual things uh, at 3756 West Avenue 40, Sweet K, number 237. Like, like the, the Shining. shining. Uh, I'm going to say for this one, don't drink Noodle McVeigh's hot carbonated pickle experience. Oh, God. And don't drink the Kool-Aid. Bye. Bye. Yeah.